Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriwetu podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed back to the south of our continent for part two of the famous Zulu peoples who dominated the region when at their height. A shout out to my South Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your shores. I apologize in advance for the mispronunciation of words which I promise you will happen. But please, when I mispronounce them, just send us the correct pronunciation. Before we begin, just a quick reminder, please visit us on our interwebs. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all the platforms. And for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. When she see oh yeah me in your color When she see oh yeah me in your color How when she see oh yeah me in your color In the first part of the Zulu, we got to see the origins as they emerged and separated from their forefathers, the Nguni. We also got to meet rulers from the Mtetwa, Mingiswayo, who heavily influenced and mentored the one, the only, Shaka. the world-famous brilliant tactician who successfully raised the Zulu nation to its zenith, and we shall learn a little bit more about Shaka later on. We also touched on Dingane, whose reign was plagued by the foreign European intruders, who were entrenching on Zulu lands. He was followed by Mpande, who upon his death was succeeded by his son, who we shall also get to know a little bit better, Setswayo. He was the last great pre-colonial Inkosi. Inkosi meaning chief. In addition, I will then take you through the Zulu expansion and take a look at the military and then lastly, its demise. Before we go any further, I wanted to quickly mention to anybody unfamiliar to the Zulu, there were a number of different kingdoms, all of which were Zulu, each with its own organized structure, military and wealth. The Zulu Empire only becomes so once we get to see Chaka from 1816. He ended up consolidating and expanding the territory. So please keep that in mind because as the terms do interchange from empire to kingdoms for a valid reason. Once again, a reminder of where we are on the continent. The area that was the Zulu Empire at its height in the early 19th century is today's modern-day region of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, stretching from the Pongola River in the north by the Lembombo Mountains all the way down south to the Tugela River and along the coastline of the Indian Ocean. The Zulu Empire's impact, though, was felt all the way across the southern region of our continent. From Eswatini, Mozambique, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, Angola, and some say as far north as Tanzania. The Amakosi. 
I will not lie. One of the reasons I selected this particular empire was a chance to research the one and only Queen Nandi and her legend of a son, Shaka. I mean, who wouldn't want to know more about one of the greatest military tacticians in the world, whose legacy lives on till today? There are so many tales about this most enigmatic Nkosi. So what I've done is to select the aspects of his life that I hope will resonate with you as he did with me. But please, please, please go and read up on him. Chaka was an Inkosana, which means prince in Zulu. And he was born of the house of Inkosi, Senza Gakona. His mother Nandi was his world. Guys, respect and take note of the women in your lives. They will take you far. And FYI, Afriwe to shall cover Queen Nandi's story for sure. This I promise. Shaka's birth was problematic. And one of the reasons was the claim that as Nandi and Senzankangona were from the same clan, their union was taboo and violated their customs. So she did what proved to be best for her son. She left. At first, she moved them to Langani, but eventually ended up in Metetwa, when Dingisayo was the ruler. The move to Metetwa is where he rose to power whilst under the influence and tutelage of Dingisayo. Shaka became part of his royal household as a teenager and held the honor of tending to the royal herd and was a trusted protege, having early on distinguished himself being a very ambitious, intelligent, shrewd and brave young man. On top of all that, he was a natural soldier, skilled at the art of war. This impressed Ningiswayo, who then elevated him to being a commanding general of one of his regiments. Shaka continually proved his skill with significant wins such as that against the chief of the Butelezi and had so elevated himself that when his father, Senzagakona, died, he was able to lay claim to his birthright with the help of Ndigiswayo. Initially, Shaka started small, not wanting to provoke his mentor. He went to like small fry kingdoms to flex his military skills. He was quickly making a name for himself and garnered a lot of respect. His ascent to the throne came in AD 1816, a key battle between the age-old frenemies, Zwinde of the Ndawandwe and Dingiswayo's Metetwa kingdoms. So, what had happened was, Shaka had been summoned to provide support at the final showdown. Crickets. Shaka did not turn up. Now, there's some theories around this. It was a deliberate betrayal. He was late to the fight. He didn't get the summons on time. Okay, to be honest, the last one I just made up. But anyway, please send in your theories or indeed facts. Use our interwebs. We will read or play them, I promise. Either way, Ningiswayo was captured and killed. And the knock-on effect was the disintegration of the Mtetwa kingdom. Shaka moved swiftly to take over, killing Mondisa, the heir, and replacing him with a Shaka loyalist. 
He then went on to face Zwinde the following year in the Battle of Mlatuze. Zindwe and his Ndwawandwe were thrashed. He fled north and died in AD 1825. By AD 1826, his people were finally defeated and they were absorbed by Shaka's Zulu. Shaka took over the mantle, growing and expanding the Zulu name and lands through conquest after conquest using very effective military tactics. The Nkosi role under Shaka became even more intertwined with the governance of the kingdom, covering, as it did, the legal arm as a chief justice, the military as a commander-in-chief, and religion as a chief priest. Shaka is credited with putting the Iklwa, spelled A-K-L-W-A, which is a short stabbing spear, at the heart of the Zulu military fighting arsenal, replacing the long-speared Asegai, which was similar to the javelin. Like a true warrior king, he used this weapon and threw himself into the thick of battle, never one to shy away. This stabbing technique is credited to making the Zulu one of the most fearsome militaries, and their skill in close combat was well-renowned. Of course, they did have other weaponry, but the Iklwa was the true weapon. On top of this, he used the Zulu Horns of the Buffalo formation alongside many other strategies to devastating effect against his army's unlucky opponents. The fighting style, leadership in battle, and striking good looks, tall, dark, and handsome, only helped to enhance the legend that was Shaka. His people saw him as Unkulunku, personified, because he was said to embody the attributes of this god with his heart and his spirit. He was seen as almost subhuman for his uncanny skills in battle. Some claimed his spear was made from an enchanted rod. Politically, Shaka was also very astute. He made sure to keep the laws of the land. He also expected undivided loyalty and allegiance and woe to those who were not. Quite a comeback from his beginnings as an outcast, right? He famously refused to have children, as he was sure that sons would covet, then kill him for the throne. But don't get it twisted. As is expected, he had concubines housed in the Isigodlo, which means the royal private enclosure. But none would be allowed to bear his heirs. These Isigodlo also housed the Amakosazana princesses, who were from neighboring kingdoms such as the Swazi for political reasons. The women in the royal enclosure were also not all necessarily wives or concubines. Sometimes there would be others there like sisters or cousins who could be married off to others at the Nkosi's behest. Chaka was a popular Nkosi, but all of this changed when his mother, Queen Nandi, died in 1827. And in his grief indulged in the most self 
destructive behavior, which then triggered the plot and eventual assassination by his own brothers. His end came whilst in the middle of a campaign to establish trade routes between the Cape and his empire. He had been meeting a delegation in this respect when his brother, Mhalangane, literally struck first, stabbing him in the back, followed swiftly by his other brother, Dingane. This sneak attack was made possible because Mbopa, his Induna, Induna meaning a trusted advisor, distracted the leader of the delegation, accusing him of being late and chasing him out of the enclosure. And it was in this commotion that the blows were struck. Shaka was killed in broad daylight in 1828 with the claim that his last words were, Oh, Bantwana, Bakababa Wami, Genzane, Kini, which translates to, Oh, children of my father, what have I done to you? Very quickly, I'd like to say thank you to Greg Francis from Joburg who gave me that translation. The conspirators then had to do what was necessary in this kind of situation, i.e. a coup, and dispose of all the regime's sympathizers amongst the nobility, the military, including the man who it was said Shaka had been grooming to take over, Gwadi. And then, people, and then, Dingane killed his own brother and co-conspirator to become the Nkosi. Guys, and there's no honor, no honor amongst murderers. It is ruthless out there in the high echelons of power. <laughs> now, the story of Shaka can never be told in just one sitting. And truly, his DNA is all over the Zulu. So like in part one, we shall keep bumping into him as we continue with this episode. Dingane ruled until 1840 and was succeeded by Mpande who reigned until 1872, who when he died had his son Setswayo take over. And this was the last of the greats. Setswayo gets special mention as the last of the great generation of Zulu Amakosi, before the invasion and cruelty that was brought to the African shores by foreigners. He became the heir to the throne after defeating his brother Mbuyazi in battle, whilst his father was still the Nkosi. He did not enjoy anywhere near the same level of power as Shaka, that is for damn sure. This included as well his grip on the council, which was never as strong. Saying that, to be fair, no one's grip was ever like Shaka's. I mean, he set it up and put, and was able to put his loyalists in very strategic positions. The times were also very different. Seshwaya was not facing constant threats of encroachment or war, so he didn't really need to have the same level of military ruthlessness and genius that Shaka used to keep people who wanted to rebel overthrow the leadership in check or fear. Seshwayo came to power and found the descendants of the families Shaka had installed. He also found them consumed by their succession battles. So he had the task of maneuvering around these political battles whilst making strategic alliances and agreeing to a number of territorial compromises while the neighboring Amakosi to keep the peace and support his reign. 
it probably didn't help that his ascent to the throne was not without its serious issues. One being that Mpande, his father and predecessor, was basically busy trying to get either of his brothers installed as a ruler. And despite winning, Seshwaya still didn't get to the throne until Mpande's death in 1872, decades after defeating the competition that was his brother's. His rule, though, was truly the last of the greats, and the cracks really showed when he was forced out of his kingdom after losing a key battle. He was captured and exiled to Cape Town, and his kingdom was carved up into 13 separate kingdoms, an experiment that failed miserably. So he ended up being brought back to rule in 1883. But this rule was very hollow due to the very restrictive treaty as well as just ruling over a much smaller territory. Sestuaya's second stint was cut short. He was attacked by, and I'm going to get this wrong, Zib Hebhu, and when he lost, he fled, dying in 1884 from suspected poisoning. Like these guys were killed by poisoning a lot. <laughs> he was succeeded by his teenage son, Dinuzulu. On his deathbed, it is claimed that Sestuaya said, and I quote the English translation, Mortal illness has now overcome me. Over there is my son, Dinuzulu, whom I am leaving behind to be reported to the queen. I leave Dinuzulu to rule for me as I have ruled for Mpande. Mpande having ruled for Shaka. Shaka having ruled for Senza Ngakona. Senza Ngakona for Jobe. Jobe for Ndaba. Ndaba for Punga. Punga for Mageba. It is well that Dinuzulu should take up arms against Zibhebhu and I will be there in the midst of the battle when we defeat him. Afriwatu, if you have any other versions of the deathbed proclamations, send them in. As the last great, after him things further disintegrated, and we shall see how later, but before we head into the demise of this magnificent collection of kingdoms, let us take a look at them in their glory days. So the expansion. The Zulu influence spread far and wide across Southern Africa, and we see some signs of it as far north as modern-day Malawi-Tanzania border. In more recent studies, it is recognized that the expansion was partly a byproduct of the political instability that had been raging for decades in the region, and that the Amakosi took advantage of the situation, especially Shaka, who through his tactical mind and ambition orchestrated the most significant era of Zulu expansion. This was amped up following his defeat of Zwide, and he went on to create one of the largest civilizations south of the Limpopo. A new Zulu identity had been forming from the days of separation from the Nguni, from a more pastoral society to one that was soon to be feared and respected by neighbors and foreigners alike for their military conquests and skills. Added to that was how Shaka put new fighting techniques to maximum and deadly effect, from close combat with the Iklwa to how regiments were organized, attacked and fought. These impis, which means warrior regiments, were feared everywhere. Tribute was paid by the chiefdoms across the empire, all to the centralized Zulu Corps. The population is said to have increased from circa 2000 and 1816 to just over 200k in just under 10 years. So you can imagine the wealth that was amassed, right? This wealth was redistributed from the center to the rest of the empire. 
The Nkosi created royal towns, which were all led under one of his wives as the ruler. And under her, she had an administrative officer to run the town. And in turn, each town had a regiment assigned to it. The Nkosi appointed the ruling administration, bureaucrats and military officers. Holding the reins of the economy was easy to do because basically he was the source of all wealth. Everyone depended on him. With this growing wealth, it was even easier for the Zulu nation to maintain not just itself, but also the military campaigns to conquer new lands. Control of this expanding territory was exercised by the insistence to keep the conquered chiefs dealing with very minor issues, those relating to either the very old and the very young. In addition, the chiefdoms were not allowed to grow past a certain size and alliances between them were forbidden. Boundaries were redrawn and taxes kept high. Once chiefdoms came under the Zulus, in order to retain social order, their local rulers were left in place and then their youth were enlisted into the army. So you had all these different young men who at the critical time in their lives, as they're starting the journey into manhood, their identity was formed and lifetime bonds created with their Zulu military family. In fact, I'm sure that there are those who serve today in the military or have served will attest to the bond with their brothers and sisters in arms. I mean, it was quite, quite clever, really. It is estimated that under Shaka's rule, he merged close to 100 chiefdoms and created an army of over 40,000 in under a decade. Now we look at the military. We've seen the rise of Shaka, the rise of the Zulu, and even heard about the expansion. All of this was made possible by one of the more well-known 19th century armies, the Zulu armies of old. They were the epitome of the Zulu culture of courage and discipline. National heroes were the soldier citizen who had sacrificed themselves for the state. So, the start. The leader of the Mtetwa, Ndingiswayo, seized power and claimed his rightful place as the son of King Jobe on his death. He created a confederacy with other chiefdoms and proceeded to reform both the political and social landscape. This is important here, why? Well, because one of the key changes, it is claimed, was his conversion of the traditional rites of passage into manhood that was circumcision. Under his rule, this rite of passage was turned into an army recruitment tool. So those young men who were in the same age groups, who before would have been circumcised, were called in from the different regions and families to form regiments instead. These new age sets were placed under generals and indunas who themselves did not have these titles through the old dynastic heritage, but instead had gotten them based on proven skill and experience. So then what happened is that within these regiments, these new bonds that were formed were not dependent on familial, local ties, hometowns or clans. And this basically had the quick effect of chopping off the hold of traditional chiefs as they were effectively replaced, becoming obsolete as leaders. 
The genius is in the simplicity of changing an existing culture and repurposing it for this use. And this practice became the norm for all the Zulu. Now each regiment had their own distinguishing colors. Each soldier, Ibuto, received a name and a location to a military regiment which had an Isigodlo, which is the royal private enclosure, for the royal household. The Amabuto, which is plural for Ibuto, were there to serve the Nkosi and their community where they were assigned and lived. And they did this from fighting to farming to construction and also acted as a local police. When at war, that is when they were referred to as Impi, which, tricky one here, it actually means war, but when referred to them in this context can mean warrior. Ningiswayo established the framework of what Shaka would build on. Having led the way with his own great military feats and conquests that saw him dominate a great deal of the area north of the Tugela River. Shaka is said to have adopted then refined his, his predecessors' innovative methods, weapons, and military discipline. Anibuto's life. The Amabuto were not allowed to marry whilst serving, but they could once they left and went back home. To be fair though, they lived in the barracks, which is not exactly conducive to a married life, you know. It was functional for military purposes like training, drills, and the like. The discipline instilled in the Amabuto was not for jokes. I mean, understand this. When you signed up, you were handed an ikloa. And the training to become proficient at this was that they were practically the best in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now this ikloa was yours for life and you lost it at pain of death. For real. And oh, this pain of death, this is a punishment that was meted out for going AWOL, dishonorable conduct, or cowardice, just to name a few. Being an Ibuto also meant you got a very well-structured life and you were a valuable member of society. The perks included getting trained by the best of the best in the art of war and, let's face it, a mini-celeb status. I mean, I am certain that there were one or two groupies. Training was intense, as with all the best militaries in the world. One example of this is the requirement to be barefoot, building on their ability to endure and withstand pain. Practically, it actually made for a swift, silent and deadly ambush of the enemy at dawn, which was when the Zulu army preferred to strike. Shaka formalized the Amabuto into regiments, which were strategically placed across the kingdom, and they remained there for the duration of their service. They lived and fought together and identified as family, so much so that when they retired, they kept the regiment name till death, even as they returned to their original homes. At their height, regiments held between 2,000 to 5,000 Amabuto, and Shaka was at one point had 15 of them. They survived through subsidy from the central government's royal treasury, and on top of this, their own spoils of war. Each one was like its own town with a governing structure. And remember in Shaka's time, it is said that he dispatched his womenkin to be the leader in each regiment town. This will become important later. In these towns, you would find herds being tended to by the young initiates who were there to study and train to become Amabuto. They came from all over the region. So this practice had the added advantage of quashing xenophobia at the root. The regiments were very well managed with the evidence seen in what they churned out, basically a well-trained and highly functioning soldier. 
The level of diligence, honor, sacrifice and pride in the army was due to the regiment's rigorous training regime. Their highly professional approach was seen in their success and the discipline and efficiency was reflected in their ability to be mobilized rapidly. Under Shaka's rule, Anibuto was not allowed to marry or have children, as we've said before, because his family would be a distraction. Okay, let's be honest, women were a distraction. You know, some things just never change. Saying that, it doesn't mean there were no women in the regiments. Women did have a role and had their own regiments. One of the roles was as mothers to the men in the army. The other was intelligence gathering, a.k.a. spies. Shaka's female nobility, remember I said, pay attention? They acted as the best intelligence gatherers, and this meant that they were able to spot any unrest, and it could be killed off effectively and with speed. Again, people, see the value of African women. We can quash rebellions before they even start. Anyway, once the regiment was dissolved, then both men and women could go off and have their families. The Demise The fall of this mighty civilization was not a swift one. It started ages before the final nail in the coffin. Some argue that the end of Shaka was when the cracks really started to appear, specifically the bloody aftermath when in his grief for his mother, Queen Nandi, her death in 1827, many Zulu were killed for reasons real and imagined. This indiscriminate killing marked the end of Shaka as his actions alienated his people and saw his fall from grace from the revered hero to a mercurial ruler, and it gave credence to those who assassinated him. The foreigners to the continent were looking for ways to grab land that belonged to Africans and delegitimize the people, culture, social structure, and civilizations, like that of the Zulus. In Southern Africa, the colonizers claimed that they were the catalyst behind civilization's growth and in some crazy instances claimed that they were there first. Yep, legit, they said that. Their interference actually also contributed to the destabilization of the Zulu. Even those external wars that were successful, like the battering that the Zulu gave to the British in 1879, saw cracks come to light, even though it was a few more decades before the region actually fell. But outside of that, the end of the Zulu dominance was also contributed to by the internal wars that weakened them. Conflicts like the prolonged civil war, which happened in the late 1800s, which truly rocked the foundation, tearing the people apart, and that saw tens of thousands of Zulus killed. Over time, the Zulu kingdoms were annexed and they lost more and more territory, and eventually their leaders were removed from office but they managed to maintain a strong influence over their people. Dinuzulu, who was the last official pre-colonial Nkosi, ruling between 1884 and 1888, was exiled to St. Helena for leading the Bambatha Rebellion. He died in 1913. While all of this was happening, there were other things happening in the world. So Liberia was founded in 1820. And then in 1852, a black American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statement, Frederick Douglass, delivers one of his keynote speeches, the meaning of the July 
forth for the Negro in New York. Over the past two episodes that cover these great people, there is so much we can pick as significant and worth a mention. I won't lie, it would be a struggle. So instead, I'm going to ask that you indulge me as I take a sort of different route here because I want to just highlight something. So here's the thing. The excuse for colonization, which is basically subjecting and inflicting this most evil of regimes on Africans under the guise of philanthropy to save or civilize us from our ignorance, was a crock. And here we see the Zulu example, which like others all over the continent, saw our ancestors thriving, having agency in their decisions, actions, structured society settings, governments, economy, like every other global citizen. The Zulu is one of the most oft-quoted pre-colonial kingdoms, and Shaka a well-known historical legend. I do hope that now we see that there was more to the Zulu than just Shaka, albeit he's a legend why lie, it was still a civilization that existed both before and after his reign. And this is what I mean. African history shows us that it's not just one or two special people who are highly evolved, but whole communities and millions of our ancestors lived and worked in highly functional social structures. This is not a new thing. In addition, African societies were not static. Despite the narrative that has been prominent for decades of being savages, barbarians and inferior, which if you're a regular listener to Afriwetu, hopefully you should see that that is quite frankly a lie. There is great value in African history, people, culture, and customs. Time and time again, Afriwetu and other similar platforms are proving this by shining a positive light on our history. The Zulu is only one of millions of examples across the continent where we see self-determination, discipline, culture, military prowess, political, social, economic independence, and so on. So, as we wrap up, the Zulu story is as fascinating today as it was in the past. From the 1600s all through to the late 1800s, it is a story of a brilliant civilization. The Zulu story was a source of great inspiration for South Africans fighting against the evil that was both colonization and later apartheid from the white oppressors. This pride is still seen today as many continue to celebrate and commemorate the historic victories. Please remember to hit us up on all our socials, Afriwetu, and leave a message on the Anchor platform. We would love to hear from you. My Zulu people especially, I apologize again for mispronouncing any words. Please feel free to correct me through our socials. I would like to end with a short quote from a Zulu poem entitled Emprashaka the Great, translated by Mazisi Kunene. Great nation of Zulu, you have shown courage against a superior enemy. The nations that spoke of you with contempt are chilled by your songs. Kings and princes shiver in their little thrones. Enemies flee to hide in the mountain caves. And such was the might of the Zulu. And with that, we say farewell. And until next time, Mubarikiwe!